Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midam, Mishian, Ishbak, and Chetua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Ashurites, the Leshusites, and the Lumites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abidar, and Eldar. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beelahiroi. This is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the son of Ishmael, listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibshan, Mishmar, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedimah. These were the sons of Israel, Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements in camps. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go toward Ashur. And they lived in hostility towards all their brothers. And we turn over to Isaiah chapter 60 on page 746. And we read again Isaiah chapter 60 starting at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. 
Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth and the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels from Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaoth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Peter, thank you so much for reading that difficult passage so well for us tonight. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open and turn back to our first reading from Genesis 25. It's on page 26 in the Pew Bibles. And also you'll find in the little bunch of paperwork you received on the way in a a handout that will give us a a clue to where we're going in the next few moments. You might want to have that to hand as well as we go. But let me pray for us as we look together at God's word. Our Father in heaven, tonight as we think about the gospel promises that we have in Christ, we pray that you'd help us to believe them, to build our lives upon them. And Father, where we struggle to believe, we ask that you'd help us to have belief and confidence in your word and in your promises that never fail. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many moments in life when we are tempted to doubt God's promises. Perhaps a period of particular poor health, whether mental or physical, can make us wonder if God really loves us. Or maybe there's something that we've prayed for, something close to our hearts, and we've prayed persistently and passionately to the Lord, asking him to answer our prayers, and he has not answered the way that we've longed for him to answer, and we wonder if he hears our prayers. Or maybe it's our circumstances. We've failed our exams, an agonizing decision we have to make, a a sudden loss of our job or the end of a relationship. Circumstances can make us wonder if God has a plan for our lives and whether he's working it out for our good. There are many moments in life when we are tempted to doubt the promises of God, but tonight we are looking at the hardest moments of all. It's a moment many of us dread or try to ignore. Many of us try to delay its coming through diets and doctors and hair dyes, and yet it is a moment we will all face, and I'm talking about the moment of our death. Tonight we are looking at the moment, the great man of faith, Abraham himself, the moment that he faces up to and then experiences his own death. And they say that you can tell a lot about a person by the way they die. And tonight, as we see Abraham die, we discover um, the nature of his faith that remained unwavering in the face of death, trusting in God's promises. For those of us here tonight who are very aware of the reality of death in our world, 
perhaps because of another or perhaps because of our own future, then I think tonight, as we look at Abraham, we will be helped to see how we can go on remaining confident in God's gospel promises, even in that great crisis. For others of us here tonight, for whom the thought of death is like a small cloud on the far horizon in an otherwise gloriously sunny day, well, tonight will show us the kind of relationship we need to be cultivating with the Lord and his promises that will stand us in good stead that when that crisis comes, we are able to stand firm. And if there are those among us tonight who are not yet Christians, we'll get a glimpse tonight of some of the wonderful gospel promises that Christians have in the Bible that take us even through death into eternal life. As we dive into our passage from Genesis 25, our first heading is this. It's there in the handout. God's promises are trustworthy, but we must trust them to the end. Verse one sets the scene for us. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. If you've been with us through our series in Genesis, you know that Abraham had been married to Sarah, Um, she has died. We saw that two weeks ago in Genesis 23. And now we read about another wife, Keturah. We don't know when Abraham married Keturah. It it may have took place when Sarah was still alive or maybe after her death. We just don't know from the text. But what is clear is that this marriage was very productive. Six sons uh, were born to Keturah and Abraham. And on one hand, this should amaze us. We know that uh, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 100 years old. And I take it that these next six sons born to Keturah were born after Isaac because there was no mention of them in the narrative when um, Abraham was longing for an heir. And so just imagine the maternity ward back in Abraham's day when you can imagine some of the dads gathered in the hallway talking and rejoicing and sharing notes. And then the door opens and in shuffles this hunched over old man clinging to his walking frame and he shuffles into the maternity ward. And they must have thought, oh, here's a great grandfather coming to visit his great grandson. But no, it's the father. And then imagine two years later and two years after that, again and again, six times, an increasingly old man shuffles in again and again and again. And so as we read these first four verses of Genesis 25, we're meant to be amazed that even in his old age, even after Isaac, Abraham is still having more sons. And yet we shouldn't be that amazed because God's promises are trustworthy And back in Genesis 17, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Not one, but many nations. And here we are seeing that promise coming to pass. These sons of Keturah would be the heads of many nations. So looking down the list, verse 4, for example, we see mention of one son, Midian. And later on, Midian uh, features lots in the Bible. Uh, Moses married a daughter of from Midian. Later on, Gideon would have some tussles with the Midianites. They feature as one of the nations again and again in the Bible. But here is the beginning of that promise coming to pass. And so even in the twilight of Abraham's life, 
God's promises are trustworthy. It is wonderful to see, but I reckon, having been through the series through Genesis, we should be squirming at this point because we know that Abraham does not have a great track record of sticking to the script when it comes to offspring. Think back to the matter of um, Hagar and Ishmael, how Abraham tried to force God's plan to give him an heir through um, the wrong means, and it all went terribly wrong in so many ways. And what about now with Keturah? We know that Abraham outlived Sarah by 39 years, plenty of time for Keturah to write her own script for how Abraham should view these boys. Just imagine the conversation one evening between Abraham and Keturah. The boys are up in bed, safely tucked away, and they're on the veranda, looking up at the stars, having a chat about all kinds of things, and Keturah leans over, Abraham, darling, I know you really love Isaac, but can't we share the love around? What about the other boys? Abraham, what if Isaac turns out to be a bit of a bad egg? What if Isaac can't have any children? Abraham, if if the plan is to have um, your descendants made into a great nation, many nations, then surely it makes more sense to have seven horses in the race rather than one. It's a safer bet, isn't it, Abraham? Abraham, your son Isaac, he's a stranger in this land. He's surrounded by people who are not his people, and wouldn't he be more safe if his brothers were around to support him, much stronger with numbers? You can imagine all kinds of alternative scripts that Keturah could pose to Abraham, and we know that he falls for it in the past. From a human point of view, then, there are lots of reasons why it might make sense for old Abraham to hedge his bets when it comes to having a a son that becomes a great nation or many nations. And in his old age, will he trust God's specific promise that Isaac, his son, would be the heir of the promise, that through Isaac, that's how God's blessing would come to the world. And sitting here many thousands of years later, we face a very similar question Because in the New Testament, in Galatians 3, for example, the Apostle Paul is very clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through Isaac and that particular family line would come gospel promises to the world. And it is through Jesus Christ, the seed, the heir of Abraham, Isaac's descendant, that those gospel promises have come to us. But here's the thing for us tonight When death comes near, so often people look for confidence in places other than Jesus Christ, the true heir of the promises of Abraham. I've spoken with people who are nearing the end of their lives, and some of them have tried to tell me about their efforts over the years to live a good life, how they have provided for their families or worked hard or have been upstanding members of society. They've given me examples, details to, to show me why that must be the case. And then they've looked at me hoping that I would agree with them that their efforts have been enough. At funerals, in that moment of raw grief, people so often don't, don't know what to say. 
And so you hear people saying things like, well, at least they lived a good life. Or as we try to comfort one another in our grief, people say things like, wasn't it wonderful to look back over a good life lived? So many good memories to rejoice in and share today. Because so often the good memories are the only things of comfort that we have in those moments. When death comes near to us, to those we know, where will we place our confidence? What about Abraham? Well, the text couldn't be clearer. After Keturah's sons are mentioned, verse five, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. The house, the car, the savings account, all his assets, the, the sheep, the, the cows, the goats, the servants, the whole lot. Instead of dishing it out evenly across all his sons, he takes all of it and he puts it on one son, the son of promise, Isaac, the one whom through gospel promises would come. And just to underline the point, look at verse six. But while he was still living, Abraham, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, that is, to the sons of Keturah and Hagar, and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. This might feel harsh um, for the other sons to be sent away to the land of the east, away from the place of blessing. But Abraham is taking clear, concrete steps to ensure that Isaac is protected from any rivals for the inheritance. And so I think we're seeing here that Abraham, even in his old age, uh, he's trusting God's promises, and in particular, trusting in the true heir of the promise, Isaac. It It will not be Ishmael or Keturah's boys. No, it will be Isaac, because the Lord said it would be Isaac. I've had the extraordinary privilege just a number of times to sit with dying Christians just moments before they died. And um, I can tell you that I have never been more aware of the joy and wonder of gospel promises than in those moments. To sit with a dying Christian and to hear them acknowledge their sin and then their confidence in the true heir of Abraham's promises, the Lord Jesus, and then to be able to lean over to them and whisper in their ear words of assurance that yes, Jesus has come into the world, the seed of Abraham, the longed for savior of the world, that yes, he did die on the cross for sins, that yes, he did rise again on the third day to resurrection life, and that yes, he has done all that we need for forgiveness and eternal life. And those promises are sweet indeed. And so like Abraham, the call for us tonight is to trust in the true heir of the promise, the gospel promises that God has made to his people. But under that first heading also, we see that Abraham trusts in his true home. And uh, look at verse seven with me. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age 
an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. It doesn't quite come through in our English translations, but the emphasis as we read about Abraham being a man full of years, uh, dying at a good old age, it's a picture of a man who is at peace with life. He is not an anxious man. He is content with the lot the Lord has given him. And as he knows his days are numbered, and as he faces death, he is at peace about that reality. Which is such a marked contrast to how so many people experience their final days. Many deny what is happening. Many cling on to hope of their life being extended through a cure or through some procedure perhaps just for a few months. Others are anxious about what is to come, deeply agitated about the future. And we also, as we think about our own deaths, might wonder and worry. We might wonder how Abraham was able to be so peaceful. I remember his dear wife Sarah had had already died and he'd been living bereaved for 39 years. And we might think, well, how can he be at peace having been bereaved? when we experience a bereavement, the, the, the way we grieve can change over the years, but it never goes away. We always grieve. So how is Abraham able to live this full life in his dying days? Well, let's read on verse nine. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar, the Hittite. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. We thought about this very plot of land two weeks ago, back in Genesis 23, when we read about the death of Sarah and how Abraham was utterly determined to buy and own this small patch of land in the promised land. And we saw how his determination to buy this land was an indication of his utter confidence in God's plans to give him the land and to his descendants that same land. In chapter 23, Abraham buried his dear wife Sarah in that very plot of land, and now he himself is buried in that same spot. And I think this is why Abraham was able to be so peaceful about his death, because he knew his death was not the end. In the New Testament, in Hebrews, it's very clear that Abraham knew that the Lord would keep his promise And that he would give Abraham the land to live in, his true home, in the land of the new creation, beyond death. And even as Abraham's lifeless body is placed beside Sarah's body, there is a hint of that hope. I wonder if you noticed that little phrase at the end of verse 8. And he was gathered to his people. I believe that's the first time that's used in the Bible. And we know that phrase is not referring to the moment Abraham died because his last breath is described in the first part of that verse. We also know that the gathering to his people doesn't refer to his burial because that happens later on in verse nine. Now it seems that this gathering to his people is just a, a little glimmer, a little hint of what we know to be true in the rest of the Bible that when God's people die physically, they are alive spiritually. They are better with Christ. They are with Christ, which is better by far. And I think there's a little hint here that Abraham is gathered to his wife, Sarah, and is with the Lord now. 
And one day, what is true spiritually will be true physically and tangibly in the new creation when Christ returns. He was gathered to his people. And so here is how Abraham faced his last days with such peace. He was confident of his true home in the new creation. And as we think about our own deaths, yes, it is perfectly understandable to be scared about the experience of dying. There are many unknowns about that moment, but we do not need to be scared about what will happen afterwards. The Bible often talks about death for the Christian like falling asleep. We fall asleep, we wake up safe and sound the next morning. So it'll be in our death and resurrection in many ways. And nor does it mean that death is a small thing. In, um, in John 11, when Jesus um, heard about the death of his dear friend Lazarus, he, he wept at the news of death. So I'm not trying to downplay death or say it's a small thing, but I am saying that confidence in our true home beyond the grave helps us to face death, standing in God's gospel promises. And if we are the kind of person who, who looks in the mirror and sees a gray hair and starts to panic, or we spend a huge amount of time in the gym trying to keep our bodies young and fit because we cannot face the thought of getting older, or we invest in diets or face creams or whatever it is, we go to, uh, to the doctor for constant health checks and worry about our heart age or lung capacity, I'm not saying to be careless with our health, but if we are fixated on trying to slow down the aging process and deny it's happening, I just wonder to what extent we've stopped being confident in our true home. There's much better to come. You see, God's promises are trustworthy, but we must trust them to the end. And just a word before we go on to our second point, just a word for those who are grieving the death of a loved one. I wonder if you've noticed in verse 11 what Isaac does after he buries his dad. We're told that God blesses him, but then he then moved to live in a place called Beer Lahai Roy. And Beer Lahai Roy, it's not a, a drink someone might have on a Friday night with a takeaway. Now, in the narrative of Genesis, it is a very special place. When Hagar and Ishmael were fleeing from Abraham, and they were out in the desert about to die, and Hagar cried out to God, God saw her plight and had compassion on Ishmael, and he made a promise to Hagar that Ishmael would not die then, but he'd become a father of many nations. And in that moment, Hagar, in her joy, called the place where she was found by the Lord, Beer Lahai Roy, which means, well of the living one who sees me. It's a place of comfort, knowing the compassionate Lord sees and cares. And as Isaac grieves his dad's death, where does he go? He goes to the same place, the place called the well of the living one who sees me. He goes to the place of comfort, because he knows that there is a God who cares, who will keep his dad and him safe, even through death. And in that place, he is comforted. I, I often think that um, when we grieve the death of a loved one, yes, it's hard before the funeral service, but 
There's something about having all the plans to think through and the friends who rally around us that almost will kind of carry through that moment. But, but so often it's after the funeral is over and there's a sort of vacuum in our lives. That's when so often we really feel the grief in a new way. And I wonder if that's what Isaac is feeling. And yet he goes to the place, or, or rather the person of comfort, where he knows the Lord sees and cares him. God's promises are trustworthy, but we must trust them to the end. Well, next, our second point, much more quickly now. God's promises are global, but they come to pass through one man. There is much in Genesis 25 that's heartwarming and encouraging, but there is one detail in this chapter which is tricky. It's the boys. They get sent away. Did you notice that? It's great for Isaac. He gets all the inheritance. He gets the the promises. But the six boys of Keturah and Ishmael, they get sent away to the land of the east, away from God's blessing. And as we watch Ishmael's family tree being sketched for us in verses 12 through to 18, that second part of our reading, as we see him becoming a nation in himself with 12 tribes, kind of mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel and selling in in a land himself, the thing is, he's not part of the gospel promises. It's good for Ishmael, but it's not the fullness of the promises Isaac gets. And it's a tricky question, isn't it? Because in the Bible, God makes wonderful gospel promises to a particular family line, but there are other families who are kind of spun off into the, um, the distance that don't feature in the limelight of God's gospel plans, and that's true for Keturah's boys and for Ishmael. And I think we're meant to feel that the uneasiness of this moment, it doesn't feel fair that Isaac gets all the promises and the rest of the boys don't. I think it's right to long for some solution. And that's where our second reading from Isaiah 60 comes into play because the prophet in Isaiah 60 has a vision of the future when the Lord returns at the time of the new creation. And in that future, the prophet sees nations coming flocking in to praise the Lord and to rejoice in his kingdom. And very specifically in Isaiah 60, the prophet mentions... Midian and Ephah, two sons of Keturah, and Kedar and Nebaioth, two sons of Ishmael. There is a day coming at the new creation when those who are caught up in the eternal gospel promises of the Lord Jesus forever, in that moment they will be the offspring of, of Keturah and of Hagar and Ishmael. And so even as we see Abraham in a sense, casting these sons out of the limelight of salvation history, we know that in the the unfolding of God's gospel promises, there's a way back in for them and their descendants. And so God's promises are global. Even if in Genesis 25 they feel very local, as the Bible pans out, they are for the whole world, including these other sons. But we need to see that they come to pass through one man. Remember, Isaac is the key, his family, his heir, leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom gospel promises are fulfilled to this world. And so in one hand, God's promises are very exclusive. They come through only one man, but then they're wonderfully inclusive. They are for the world. 
And uh, this coming Wednesday night, we've already had it mentioned, that we'll have a, a chance to hear from our mission partners who are um, flung out from here across the whole world wonderfully. And the reason why they go to far corners of the world is because they get this, that God's gospel promises are global. They are for all nations. There is no tribe or tongue or language or ethnic group that is outside of beyond God's gospel offer. And so they go, but they go also because they know there's only one man through whom those promises come. It's the Lord Jesus. There is no other way. That's how God's gospel promises come to us. And of course, we don't have to go overseas to meet people from every nation and culture. Just stay here in Sheffield for a few weeks. Uh, Last night, we had 120 people across the way in the church center for the Chinese New Year celebration, many of them Mandarin speakers. Wonderful to have have, um, different cultures and languages, part of things here at Fullwood. And it's great to proclaim an offer to all of them. God's gospel promises are global. And of course, for us here tonight, my guess is many of us are not ethnically Jews. And the very reason we are able to be here tonight and to rejoice in the gospel promises of the Lord Jesus is because they are global and they've come to us from different nations and backgrounds. And so we should be thankful, joyful. But I reckon as we see the tension of Genesis 25, we should be people who are urgently about the business of telling people about God's global promises. Yes, it is tremendously sad to think of the sons heading out from the place of blessing. How should we respond? Well, we should go out into the nations and tell as many people as we can that there is one man through whom these gospel promises come if you turn and trust in him. And so whether we stay here in Sheffield, our, our course mates, our friends at school, the people, our neighbors, people we see, tell everyone. But maybe there are some here tonight or through this week, maybe next Sunday, our mission Sunday, for whom we should seriously consider being part of a a kind of wider global mission because that is the scope of God's promises. I reckon as Abraham in his final days sent his sons away, he didn't know how they would come back in the future, but I reckon he had confidence they would. I can imagine he had lots of questions about timings and, and how it would happen and At his death, he didn't have all the answers. And for us too, we may wonder how the nations will be one for the gospel. We don't have all the answers tonight. But we do know it's through one man, Jesus Christ. There are many reasons why we might doubt God's promises. But there's a day coming beyond death when we will be gathered in the new creation, surrounded by our loved ones who have gone before us in the Lord, and by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And until that day, may we be a people who trust in the promises of God until our final breath. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this example of a great man of faith, Abraham, as he faced his final days and died. We thank you that he knew about a home beyond the grave in the new creation, and he knew how to get there through Jesus Christ, trusting in the heir 
and the gospel promises. And Father, we thank you for us tonight that those promises have come to us. And Father, please help us, particularly those tonight who are very aware of death, who are grieving, who are scared, who have all kinds of questions. Father, please help us to cling on to that one man, the Lord Jesus, and to cling on to his gospel promises of our future home in the new creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.